Our first scripture text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. If you want to follow along with the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find this text printed on page 17 in the Old Testament section of the Bible. Listen now for a word from God. After these things, God tested Abraham. God said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the, the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father. And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now a reading from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. You can find it on page 146 of the New Testament. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, so that you obey their desires. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, 
You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become enslaved to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to even more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what fruit did you then gain from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the fruit you have leads to sanctification, and the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, let me start this morning with a rhetorical question. Why? Why do we read Scripture? I mean, obviously, it's central to our faith as God's Word for us, but our relationship with Scripture is very different from other writings, even other religious texts. There are a handful of books that I've reread in my life, but most of the time, after I've read something, I put it on the shelf, and then I'm on the prowl for the next good thing. The Bible, however, is something that I turn to daily. In addition to my personal devotions or studies when I'm writing a sermon, I'm also involved with multiple Bible study groups here in our church. Bible study, in one form or another, is a spiritual discipline we encourage all people of faith to engage in, and it's certainly at the heart of our worship service. Here's the thing. The words mostly stay the same. I say mostly because, yes, there have been multiple translations, especially in the 20th century, of these ancient words, but the underlying words are the same. I'll answer that question. I say we read Scripture even though it stays the same, because every time we come to it, we have changed. Maybe it's incremental. We're a day or a year older. Maybe we're approaching it for a different reason. It's one thing to read a Bible passage right before you go to bed. It's quite another thing to read that Bible passage knowing you're going to get up in the morning and teach Sunday school on it or preach from it. Sometimes you've had a major event happen in your life and you come to the text very differently. I can well recall one such instance in my own life. It was June 26, 2005. That was a Sunday. I was in Chris's shoes that morning. I was the liturgist for worship at Fayette Presbyterian Church, and the lectionary 18 years ago was in the same place. You see, it's a three-year cycle. I'm a bit embarrassed by this fact. I wasn't preaching that morning. Reverend Dr. Garrett Hoffman was, and I cannot remember a single thing he said that day. But I can tell you about the feeling that washed over me when I began to read the same pericope from Genesis that Chris just read to us. It was one of horror. As I was reading, my voice caught in my throat. Uh, There was a pregnant pause 
if anyone in the congregation noticed, no one ever mentioned it to me, but it felt like an eternity to me. But I was able to <clears throat> clear my throat and soldier on. But even as I was reading the words on the page in the correct order, my mind was elsewhere. It was racing. Hey, how, how could Abraham even contemplate doing what he's about to do? Even knowing how the story ends, as I do, to entertain the thought process of sacrificing a child, especially your own child, it's, it's unimaginable. And the reason that text struck me so differently that Sunday morning is the fact that my wife had given birth to our son, Robert, the previous November. For the past eight months, you know, we were in the thick of it. We weren't even sleeping all the way through the night, mostly. But it's one of those things you do and you love, even if it's hard. The love that a parent has for a child who's wanted is stronger than just about any other bond in the human family. And we know from the larger Genesis story that Abraham and Sarah, they want nothing more than a child themselves. And yet here Abraham is told by God to go and do frankly, the unthinkable. Now, Christians, we, we read this text as a foreshadowing of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it's easy to recognize the parallels, but the Old Testament story ends with a ram being substituted for the child to make that acceptable sacrifice. And for the Hebrews, one takeaway from this story is that Yahweh did not demand the sacrifice of Hebrew children. And this was in stark contrast to the ancient religions of their neighbors. When the story was adopted into the canon of the Christian life, Jesus became the substitution. He became the acceptable sacrifice. And look, I'm a lifelong Presbyterian, and this is the way I've always thought about it, because this is what I was taught. You know, I'm probably the last of a generation of children who memorized the Catechism for Young Children. The full title is Being an Introduction to the Shorter Catechism. The pastor of our church in Alabama would give a $25 savings bond to any child who could answer the 145 questions to his satisfaction. And as the title alludes, the Little Catechism was really a distillation of the Westminster Shorter Catechism from 1647. It was created in 1840 as a way to update the archaic language and the phrasing for modern reader, readers, if you can think of 1840 as being modern. It was printed in a little pink booklet. I still have a copy. Unfortunately, I couldn't bring it this morning because it's packed away somewhere upstairs when we're doing the Smith Building renovations. Now, I'm not going to cover the whole catechism, but after the child answers questions about how we're condemned by original sin and then how we're saved by grace and not works, the questions turn to the mechanism by which that happened. Question 45, what did Christ undertake in the covenant of grace? Answer, to keep the whole law of his people and to suffer the punishment for their sins. Question 46, did our Lord Jesus ever commit the least sin? Answer, no, he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. Question 47, how could the Son of God suffer? Christ, the Son of God, became man that he might obey and suffer in our nature. Question 48, what is meant by the atonement? Answer, Christ satisfying divine justice by his sufferings and death in the place of sinners. Now look, it wasn't until I got to seminary that I actually read the Westminster Confession of Faith and then the longer and shorter catechisms, but the catechism for young children 
really is an accurate distillation of the theory of atonement that had come to prominence in the 17th century. Here's just a brief sentence from a much longer document. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus set justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Friends, I know the pulpit is not the place to have an in-depth discussion about theories of the atonement. In fact, I'll leave that to our distinguished scholar in residence, Chris Holmes. But I think it's important to note that what was taught to me as a child isn't where the church started. Again, it was in seminary where we dug a little deeper. One of the earliest understandings of atonement was from the patristic fathers, especially Origen. It's a theory called ransom. This belief, and this is a kind of a watered down version here, um, but this belief stated that since Adam and Eve had sinned in the garden, human beings were now doomed to eternal damnation. They were basically cast over to Satan. But God made a bargain whereby Jesus would die and Satan would release uh, the humans from hell. But it was a trick because once Jesus got into hell, well, he was stronger than Satan and he could just burst free, break free and come back on Easter. And this was the prevalent understanding from the fourth century to the 11th. I would like to share though that there was a counter theory, probably not as popular, but one I find really interesting because of how out there it is. It, it's now called Christus Victor. It basically says that Jesus died on the cross so that he could then enter willingly the realm of Satan. That's the descended into hell part of our creed. But once he got there, he began to fight him and defeat him. Dr. Shirley Guthrie, who's my theology professor, he called this the Rambo Jesus. You can find early church iconography that illustrates this belief by Googling, and I encourage you to do this, Google Christus Victor icons. And what you'll find is pictures from early, like first, second century churches with mosaics and um, murals showing Jesus. He's in a city that's on fire, this is hell, and he's, in some of them, breaking down the gates, and some of them he's got the cross held over his shoulder as he's marching in to raise the dead, uh, and others he's actually quashing the devil. It looks like a worm or a demon on the ground, and he's on top of him. Um, I really wish they'd shown this to me when I was in Sunday school because I would have paid way more attention. As I said, ransom theory was prevalent until the 11th century, but then it was replaced by the thinking of primarily one man, Anselm of Canterbury. In 1099, he wrote, Cur Deus Homino, which translates to why God became man. It was a thought experiment where he argued with an imaginary foil, another monk that he named Bozos. It's interesting aside, uh, a lot of linguists think that the word bozo comes from this uh, because bozos in this uh, argument is always on the losing side. Um, anyway, Anselm reasoned that God could never be indebted to Satan because God made Satan. Instead, human sin has offended God and a sacrifice must be made to restore honor. The problem is that humans are so lowly that nothing we can do would make God whole. This is from the book, and it's this dialogue between Anselm and Boso. And he says, Anselm, so no one except God can make the satisfaction. And Boso says, that follows, Anselm. But no one except humanity ought to do it. Otherwise, humanity has not made satisfaction. Boso, nothing can be more just. Anselm, so if no one except God can make it, and no one except man ought to make it, 
there must be a God-man to make it. To which Boso replies, blessed be God. Now we are getting pretty close to what I was taught. And I do want to tell you how it was refined by Calvin a half century later, but I want to point out that most scholars agree that Anselm had taken a vow of chastity. And so he would not have had children that might hang up his thinking when reading about the sacrifice of Isaac or Jesus. So on to Calvin. For Calvin, it wasn't about honor. It was about judgment and punishment. Because we sinned and because we constantly do, we deserve hellfire. We deserve pain. This is from the Christian Institutes. This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. We must above all remember this substitution, lest we tremble and remain anxious throughout life, as if God's righteous vengeance with the Son of God has taken upon himself still hung over us. And if you go back to what I memorized in the catechism as a child, question 48, what is meant by atonement? Christ satisfying divine justice by his sufferings and death in the place of sinners. So here's an emphasis, not only on the substitution, but on the suffering as punishment, the pain Jesus endured. And so I think it should be noted that in ancient Israel, when the priests sacrificed animals for use in the temple, they made care to use an especially sharp knife and they cut the animal's neck on a point underneath the chin that has much fewer nerves than the rest of the animal's neck. The animals died from a loss of blood. They would essentially go into shock, but they would fall unconscious. So it was less painful than some sort of trauma. Modern uh, butchers have done studies and shown that this method is relatively humane. as much so as the bolt stunning that we use in modern Western slaughterhouses. And this method of using a knife on the neck is still used in kosher and halal butcher shops. Now, after I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking I'm gonna eat vegetarian for lunch, but my point is the cross was not about humane execution. It's not an exact substitution for the the rams and the lambs and all that were used on the altar. It was about making the condemned suffer as much as possible before death. We talked about this at Good Friday. The cross was the ultimate torture device. So much so that if you were to witness someone on the cross, you would think twice before crossing the empire and enduring the same fate. And so for Calvin and later members of the Westminster Divines, The fact that Jesus suffered unimaginable pain was part and parcel of how each of us were saved. I'm not certain this information is pertinent, but while Calvin was married, he and his wife, Italette, had no children survive infancy. So I'm not really sure how he would read our Genesis text either. Look, there's much about Calvin's theology I like. I consider myself something of a modern-day Calvinist. But to say that God's perfect son not only must die, but must also suffer an ignominious and painful death. Well, ever since I became a father, I've been struggling with that. 
If you ever want to see the culmination of this theology, go read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Well, thankfully, we live in a time of modern medicine, and childhood is not generally as fraught as it was in the 16th century. And my son grew past infancy and was followed by a brother. As my sons grew in stature and understanding, it came time for me to talk to them about God and what we believe. I did not um, make my sons suffer the same catechism that I did, <laughs> but I did share something with them that my mother read to me and my brothers, which was C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. My mother read them to me and my brothers as we were children. Um, and I tell you, these memories came back because the Hours for Today Sunday School class this past spring explored how Lewis and his good pal J.R.R. Tolkien and other the Oxford Inklings, they called themselves, investigated the use of traditional folk tales to convey concepts of morality and mystery. Uh, the Inklings reasoned that these stories were places where complex topics like the perpetual battles of the righteous against the entrenched evil could be explored safely in a fantasy form that was far more palatable for young people than real, gory human history. We need to remember that when the Narnia books and the Lord of the Rings were being written, the Nazis were running amok in continental Europe. Lewis and Tolkien wrote their books so that they could be enjoyed on multiple layers. And as a child hanging on the arm of the chair where mother read to us, I only understood the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe as a fairy tale, a story about four children slipping through a closet into a magical world, one that I wished I could very much visit. And it wasn't until many, many years later that I get it. And it, it's no secret now that the whole thing is an allegory for Christianity. Aslan is Jesus. Lewis was bold to make the hero of the story a lion, simultaneously terrifying to the children, but never dangerous to them. And that's from Scripture. He says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals, Revelation 5.5. 5. Lewis knew from the get-go that the very young would not understand his stories as allegories. That was for their parents. But he knew that the fictions were laying the groundwork for, for when the scriptures, the real human stories, were shared with them. Understanding the sacrificial offering that the fictional Aslan makes for one of the children, the traitorous little brother Edmund, prepares children to understand the cross and what Jesus did for each of us. As I read to my sons, I remembered that my brother and I rapidly became fond of the line in the story, even if we missed who he really was supposed to be. I mean, think about it. We were reading this at home. We were going to Sunday school. We never put the two together. We weren't ready for him to turn himself over to the witch and her minions. We reasoned that he could have used his power and might at any time to stop what was happening to him, but he didn't. Aslan acted meekly and mildly, and he didn't resist when the evil characters taunted and tortured him. Rereading it as an adult, I realized that even the fiction is pretty strong stuff. And I, I can remember from my own childhood choking back tears uh, and, and, of course, trying to hide that from my brother, uh, mopping up the tears with the corner of my pajamas uh, as the tears welled up in my young eyes as the ghouls shaved and mocked the once mighty Aslan as he was bound and drugged to the stone table. Here, let me re read to you what Lewis wrote. 
When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so tightly that he was really a mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. At last the witch drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, and now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. And that's the end of the chapter. And it's a good thing because even though it had been three decades or more since my mother had read this to me, I found that as I read it to my sons, emotions came welling up from some deep, fragile part of my psyche. Lewis's account of the sacrifice of Jesus is missing that vengeful, angry God piece. Here we have sadness instead. Now, Lewis came along before the next theory of atonement, but I think he was on to something. And so this brings me to my closing rhetorical question. Who gets to read Scripture? I think the answer now is anybody. You can pick up a Bible. It's online. It's everywhere. It's ubiquitous. But that's not how it always was. Throughout most of Christianity's history, only a select group had the ability or the right to read Scripture. It was mostly men, men who were allowed to read and interpret. That, of course, changed during the Reformation and with the invention of the printing press. But even still, as universal literacy began to spread, in places where humans were enslaved, it was illegal to teach those persons to read. And so in the last century or so, others who formerly were forbidden from reading scriptures are now reading it, and they're bringing their own context, their own understanding, persons like women, people of color, and more. And so there's a branch of modern theology that's called liberation that reads the scriptures through the eyes of the formerly enslaved and or the currently oppressed and the downtrodden. And their scholars have proposed that the crucifixion was not so much God's will, but that it happened because it allowed God to experience what has happened to so many of God's children here in our broken and sinful world. We have to remember, the crucifixion of Jesus was not a one-off. The Romans did it all the time. And so in this telling, God sent Jesus into the world one that was ruled by a violent empire. He was Jewish, which means he was subjugated and therefore marginalized. And when he stood up for the rights of the poor, the state executed him. And in that, God weeps rather than feels satisfaction. I can remember Dr. Guthrie telling us the Christian doesn't so much take Jesus out into the world but rather goes out in the world to find Jesus already out there doing the work of redemption. He told us that often we see the face of Jesus in the people who need our help the most.
In the end, like so much of what we just take on faith, we may never know exactly what happened on the cross and in the tomb, but that's okay. What's truly important is we know that on Easter, that tomb was empty. And that means, as Paul told us, now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the fruit you have leads to sanctification. And the end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.